Hi, this is John Olson. Thank you for joining us on the National Security This Week podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe so you'll receive a new edition of the podcast every week. Please leave us a review as well and tell others about us. And please contact us with any feedback or opinions you might have by emailing nstw at kymnradio.net. We hope you find the show informative and interesting. Thanks again. National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, May 11th, and you've joined us for National Security This Week. We get together here on KYMN Radio every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security. And we're joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore American national security. A few months ago, we did a show covering the U.S. Navy and U.S. Air Force foreign area officer programs and the role of defense attaches in support of American national security interests. We're going to continue discussions along those lines today. And with us to discuss international programs for the United States Air Force is Brigadier General John Tykert. Brigadier General John E. e. John Tykert is the Assistant Deputy Undersecretary of the Air Force for International Affairs. In this position, he provides oversight and guidance for U.S. Air Force and U.S. Space Force international policy and programs supporting national security objectives through a broad security cooperation portfolio. These security cooperation activities include political military affairs, security assistance programs, technology information disclosure, education and training, exercises, cooperative research and development, senior leader engagements, and the Air Force Foreign Liaison Office. Brigadier General Teichert also assists in managing 379 cooperative research, development, tests, and evaluation agreements valued at $77 billion, as well as 3,300 foreign military case sales valued at more than $240 billion. Additionally, he chairs the developmental team that oversees the U.S. Air Force Foreign Area Officer Career Field, with more than 400 FAOs serving in 120 countries and leads more than 175 military exchange airmen and guardians in 38 partner nations. Brigadier General Tykert received his commission through the Air Force Reserve Officer Training Corps program in 1994 at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Throughout his career, he's held a variety of operational, instructional, test, and leadership positions, including command at the squadron, group, and wing levels. Prior to his current position, he served as a senior defense official and defense attache to Iraq. Brigadier General John Tykert is a command pilot with more than 2,000 hours in 38 different aircraft types. His combat experience includes Operations Northern Watch, Deliberate Forge, and Allied Force. Brigadier General John Tykert, welcome to National Security This Week. John, it is an absolute joy to join you. <laughs> I want to thank you for having a great show every single week, and thank you for the opportunity to focus on the importance of allies and partners, security cooperation, international engagement, and finally, thanks for your service to our country as a sailor, intel officer, and though you don't fully claim it, a foreign area <laughs> officer yourself. I appreciate that, General. Thank you. Uh, so you're sitting in the Pentagon today, is that right? I am indeed, looking out my beautiful window on the E-ring. All right. All right. Uh, so, General, let's start our conversation today by discussing the, the recent posting you had uh, to Iraq as the senior defense official and the defense attache. 
Uh, what was your time in Iraq like as we transitioned between U.S. administrations, considering the challenging situation dealing with a friendly Iran-Iraq alignment among many uh, senior political and military personnel uh, in Iraq? John, thanks for the opportunity to talk about it. I arrived there in Baghdad in early May of 2020 and was there almost constantly until July of 2021. And while the change of U.S. administrations was interesting there, more fascinating was the change of Iraqi administrations. Yeah. Uh, on the first full day that I was there in Iraq, Mustafa al-Khadami was sworn in as the interim prime minister. And there had been a wave of change towards progress and counter um, corruption in Iraq that had been dimmed down to some extent during that time I arrived by COVID. But it certainly was an active time in a wrestling match between the rightfully elected government and its security apparatus and those that I call the terrorist militia groups that were trying to do their own will uh, on behalf largely of Iran during that time. And the way they communicate both during the change of Iraqi administrations and the change of U.S. administrations tended to be with rockets or now more recently with uh, small unmanned aerial vehicles. And each time they did that, they harmed the sovereignty of Iraq and they also hindered the ability of the Iraqis and us alongside of them encountering that common threat against humanity, ISIS. I mean, what, what else can you tell us about kind of the situation in Iraq that you saw? Uh, I, I mean, is is Iraq stable today? Uh, I mean, based on what you saw, uh, how, how much influence does Iran have inside the country? So I think it's encouraging that during the recent election in the fall, several of those groups that were aligned with Iran did not win parliamentary seats. Okay. And I also think it's encouraging that Kadami himself has a very reform, I would say, pro-Western mindset in his desire to counter corruption and to find good partnerships with his neighbors in the region and to make sure that his number one priority is the sovereignty of his country and the well-being of that country. And so I think there's hope. I think that COVID killed some of the protest movement that could have allowed some of the um, more rapid progress that maybe we had hoped for there in Iraq. Yeah. But I think their military is very capable in their ability to defeat and destroy ISIS. And I think the tide is turning against some of those militia groups that are seen themselves as counter to the well-being of Iraq. And, and you brought up uh, the Islamic State, ISIS. Uh, th there's actually, a lot of people don't seem to realize this uh, when I have conversations with them out, out in the, the general public, but the Islamic State and uh, the militia groups that Iran supports are not actually aligned. <laughs> so there's actually really kind of a competition there uh, outside of the Iraqi government for influence and, and even control over over portions of Iraq. Uh, what was it that you saw? I mean, Islamic State is not dead, unfortunately. There's a lot of uh, uh, Salafist jihadi groups all around the world. Um, what, what, what do things look like in Iraq with regards to Islamic State? From, from a vantage point of ISIS, they are defeated but not destroyed, yeah. which means that they can't control territory, though they thrive in those ungoverned areas uh, that either Iraq can't govern or that these militia groups have caused such instability that it allows ISIS to survive in those areas. But the, the truth of the matter is that Iraq's security apparatus is pretty capable. And the reason that we're there, the United States, 
is at their invitation to advise, assist, and enable them to finally stamp out any remnants of ISIS in their territory. Unfortunately, those militia groups are running counter to that, not because they're aligned with ISIS, right. but because of the instability that they sow ultimately allows ISIS safe havens to thrive. Yeah, and that's the influence of Iran on the internal security situation in, in Iraq. Uh, so that that U.S. presence that's in Iraq, uh, that's really, I mean, that kind of gets to the core of what we're talking about today, the international affairs programs and whatnot. Uh, and, and you are now the Assistant Deputy Undersecretary of the Air Force for International Affairs. Uh, what is that position, and, and what are you responsible for uh, in your day-to-day leadership and management duties? I, I know I provided a brief outline of those duties in my introduction, but I, I know we can and should drill down much more deeply into those duties. Uh, those duties are obviously vitally important for American national security interests. Absolutely. And John, you rattled off a lot of numbers early on about the scope and scale of the Department of Air Force's International Affairs Program. And it is indeed extensive. And one thing that I want to say up front that you noted in the bio was that we in SAF-IA are responsible for security cooperation and international affairs for the entirety of the Department of the Air Force, which includes the service of the Air Force and the service of the Space Force. And You talked a lot about some numbers with respect to collaborative research development, test and evaluation, and also the equipping portion of our role, uh, which is those systems that we have given or sold to countries. But really, our job in SAF-IA is to manage all of that, and that includes helping our senior department leaders shape strategy and policy for international affairs, And then to support our security cooperation officers and attachés spread around the world who are trying to implement that overarching strategy that comes from the headquarters of the Air Force and the headquarters of the DOD. And we do that with a variety of security cooperation tools. The ones that are the most flashy are the ones that have large dollars associated with them, and that is equipping. But we do things that uh, facilitate collaborative RDT&E. We talked a little bit about that education, training, exercises, engagements, the state partnership program. Those are all tools of security cooperation that create our abilities to find common objectives and pursue those objectives with our allies and our partners. And maybe just a quick sample of what we've done in the front office in the last couple of days. Yesterday, the Bulgarian uh, defense minister stopped by our office to talk to my boss, Ms. Kelly Seabolt about a variety of the security cooperation programs that we're engaged in with them, including their desire to uh, purchase new F-16 Block 70s. And um, that was the topic of conversation yesterday. And John, as soon as we're done today, I'm going to put on my service dress jacket and run down the hall to support the chief of space operations as he engages with the chief of defense for Norway as they look for collaborative opportunities in space domain awareness and um, rapid responsive launch. And then tomorrow, we will both participate, my boss and I, in a couple of celebratory activities. Qatar and Israel celebrate important anniversaries tomorrow. And so we will be a part of that to demonstrate the importance of this partnership. And hopefully, by the time we engage with Qatar tomorrow night, We'll be able to share with them the good news that six new Qataris F-15s have landed there in Qatar as a part of their most recent buy to meet their security objectives in Qatar. 
Uh, so to be clear on that, uh, on those military uh, the equipment uh, sales and, and whatnot, it's all Air Force related, right? Uh, jets, missile systems, communications gear, maybe some radar systems. Is that kind of the thing that we're talking about? Absolutely. So the equipping piece of it is all of those things, plus the space equivalents to those things as we work collaboratively with our space partners. But our portfolio in that equipping arena is huge, $240 billion you described a little earlier. And it is important for us not just to get the equipment into the hands of our allies and partners, but to make sure that they can use it properly (laughs) and that it lasts and is sustainable for the long term. We call that a total package approach in the security cooperation world these days. And for us, it's not just about the front end of equipping, but it is sustaining that equipment in order to meet the needs of the national security of those allies and partners. Yeah. Uh, So, General, you transitioned from supporting Iraqi needs as a senior defense official and defense attache to now running the U.S. Air Force's broader international affairs portfolio. Uh, Let's move to two articles that you penned for the website War on the Rocks, which covered this topic of security cooperation. Uh, You mentioned really important lessons you learned from your time in Iraq and why it matters to America now. Uh, Could you start with the March 15th article, which is titled uh, titled The Power of Proper Security Cooperation? What what inspired you to pen that uh, really excellent discussion on the importance of security cooperation? And and could you summarize your key arguments for our listeners? Absolutely, John, and and thanks for asking. And the the idea for that article— came from a major in the United States Marine Corps that worked for me there in Baghdad during those 14 months that I was there. And towards the end of my tenure at a commander's call, he asked a pretty simple question, which was, what would I tell the president of the United States about my time in Iraq if ever given an opportunity? And I broke that great question down into two different sections of answers when I answered him on that day. And the first section was more specifically about my assessment of Iraq, and I provided that in a different venue directly to um, the intel community. But then the second piece of it was my assessment based on that singular data point of 14 months in Iraq about our broader security cooperation enterprise uh, and the policy and process considerations that stem from that enterprise. And that's essentially the basis of that article. There were some things that in my answer to him about the embassy specifically and about the power of presence that I didn't include the article. But I really wanted to grasp on security cooperation and where we do things right as the United States of America, which is, I think, in the areas of performance and cost. I'll talk more about that maybe in a bit. And where we don't do things right, which is in the area of schedule. And what I mean by all of that is that I think the equipment we provide to our allies and partners is top-notch. We balance security and and releasability in a variety of ways, but I think we offer our allies and partners very good capability. And though it is expensive, I think you get what you pay for. And especially with respect to the fact that we're not just looking to get you capability and walk away – but we're looking to be with you for the next 30 years to help you sustain that capability. And it does cost money to do so. And I think we do a good job at performance and cost. But I think our process is slow. And I think as a result, we do not get the equipment to our partners to meet their requirements on the timeline that is sufficient or satisfactory to them. And I call that the schedule problems in our process. 
our competitive disadvantage. And I explored a lot of that in the article that I pinned in early March. Yeah, and I would say just for our, for our listeners, uh, again, the, the title of that first article that came out on March 15th on uh, War on the Rocks website, The Power of Proper Security Cooperation, uh, there's a lot of detail in here about t- Title 22, uh, foreign military sales. You talk about that total package approach and, and, and a discussion of uh, the complexity of, of the scheduling side of that, uh, which is really helpful for, for people who may not be aware of this. And you followed up that War on the Rocks piece a week later with a second excellent discussion on the hard power of security cooperation. Again, for our listeners, could you please summarize the gist of that piece? I, I, think, the, I think this will help set the stage for what I'd like to cover in our next two segments today, especially since you so clearly described the NATO air operations uh, happening across Eastern Europe in response to Russia's uh, aggression uh, against Ukraine. Absolutely, John, and I really did not intend for those articles to come out with only a week spacing between them, (laughs) just based on the way the publication happened. The first article had been in the hopper for a while, and they happened to publish it as I was starting to put thoughts onto paper for the second article. And really, the, the genesis of that second article was my desire to help readers understand the importance and the power of what we do in the international engagement and security cooperation enterprise. And I was looking for a tangible example to describe that to a broader population. And I had the opportunity there in early March to attend the NATO Air Chief Summit on behalf of the Department of the Air Force. That is when General Harrigian, the commander of NATO Allied Air Command and United States Air Forces in Europe, brought together all of the air chiefs from all of the NATO countries with a couple of additional air chiefs that were interested in the meeting and talked about, in general, um, the types of things that they could do together. It wasn't a meeting planned based on what was going on in Ukraine. It's a twice a year meeting that happened to fall in the first couple of weeks of what happened based on the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And as I sat in that room, hearing about combined air operations and space operations that were being executed seamlessly and going to events like a social at General Harrigian's house and seeing the close friendships between all of those allied air chiefs, I saw how engagements and relationships translated very directly into the hard power of effective deterrence operations on the eastern flank of NATO. And um, and so that was the genesis of writing that article. And really the thesis is the power of properly done security cooperation in a tangible way. And my lingering concern that came from that article is that sometimes our security processes um, allow risk to be transferred to the operator and the combatant commander in the name of preserving our technological edge. And I discussed that concern in that article, and I certainly believe that we need to understand more about the operational risk and the combatant commander's risk instead of always focusing on the technical risk of sharing with allies and partners. Yeah, and, and I think, uh, General, just uh, we've, we've talked about these kinds of topics before on this show, uh, and, and I think the sort of the, fr- the framing that I like to, to, to provide to the listeners is you cannot surge trust in a crisis. That has to be built up over a long period of time. And, and the kind of things you're talking about, the kind of role that you play 
uh, on the uh, Air Force staff is exactly that, building that kind of trust over a long period of time. So in a crisis like what we face today in Ukraine, there is a lot of trust built up uh, that can be used to sort of build a, a, a very fast response uh, to the kind of uh, aggression that Russia has shown. So absolutely. And not only is it trust, but it is also the capability to interoperate. Yeah. And that includes equipment, but it also clu- includes command and control and other processes that don't get just worked out properly when a crisis comes, but you've exercised and trained to those processes and that interoperability well before the crisis. And uh, I have to take a quick break for uh, station identification. For our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is U.S. Air Force Brigadier General John Teichert, who currently serves as Assistant Deputy Undersecretary of the Air Force for International Affairs. Uh, General, let's move into a more strategic-level discussion. This sort of follows naturally from what we were just talking about. On this show, we often discuss the tools of national power, uh, which is the power of diplomacy, the sharing of uh, information, among allies and friends, uh, the military power a nation possesses, and, of course, the economic strength, which is a power all on its own. These four tools are often referred to as a dime, diplomacy, information, military, and economic power. As the head of the U.S. Air Force's International Affairs Programs, how do you see the application of the tools of national power in American statecraft, which I think is both an art and a science, frankly? People, people often think the military is only engaged on military hard power missions, but that's clearly not true. How is the Air Force part of the application of all of the tools of national power, everything that's included there in that in that DIME acronym? Absolutely, John. And I do think that DIME is a good construct to consider as we talk about this going further. And I have no doubt that your savvy listeners understand the linkage between what we do in the Air Force and grand strategy. But let me just talk about it a little bit, because I think it will help us flesh out some of these ideas. And the listener undoubtedly understands that the grand strategy within our country flows from the national security strategy. And the defense component of that um, is the national defense strategy. And the most recent national defense strategy that was published about a month ago, the, the unclassified fact sheet, will talk a lot about a phrase that is new in our lexicon, integrated deterrence. Mm-hmm. And we've been doing deterrence now for decades. That's not a new term. Yeah. But the idea of integration or integrated deterrence is the idea that we are not just looking at deterrence from a defense standpoint or even from a whole of government national security strand standpoint in the United States. But we're doing it fully alongside of our allies and our partners And we're doing it across domains and across theaters and across spectrums of conflict. Uh, And we're doing it so that any potential foe understands the folly of doing something counter to our common interests. And so those are the things that we're trying to make sure within SAFIA we fall under because that's the strategy that ultimately um, we are beholden to and rightfully so to make sure that we have continuity of effort within the Defense Department and the whole of government in the United States. When you're a practitioner of security cooperation and international engagement specifically, there are a couple of additional documents that are important to understand. One of them is the theater security cooperation plan of a combatant commander. That is the defense-focused efforts in the entirety of that area of responsibility. But then very specifically at the bilateral level, It's the integrated country strategy that is published by the ambassador. 
And our SCOs, security cooperation officers and attaches, are part of that ambassador's country team. And that country team, in my experience in Iraq, is a brilliant grouping of professionals and patriots who work in a variety of organizations. And they look to further American national security through all of those elements of dime tailor-made to that specific country. Uh, and, and so that's a little bit of the walk from NSS all the way down to the country team. And going back a little bit to what I saw in that room in early March at the NATO Air Chiefs Symposium, that I heard the detailed discussions about combat air patrols that are being flown on NATO's eastern flank to ensure that we're properly deterring Russia from um, infringing upon our NATO sovereignty and how they are being executed via mobility aircraft and ISR aircraft and command and control aircraft and how they're being done by a variety of nations using a variety of equipment. And to me, it was extremely powerful to see some of those things we just talked about with respect to integrated deterrence and an integrated country strategy and a theater security cooperation plan play out in a very tangible way on NATO's eastern flank. And while those planes that are flying are more of the military component of dime, they are not flying alone absent of broader strategy. Okay. They're being folded into broader strategy by ambassadors and geographic combatant commanders and our national command authority as they are applying the military component to further broader U.S. strategy. So on this show, we, we often talk about uh, also the concepts, you know, hard and soft power, but even the concepts of sharp and smart power, which are two relatively more recent uh, concepts that have come out there. Some scholars take, look at those terms, sharp and smart power, and wave them off as kind of irrelevant because everything can be slotted into either hard or soft power. How, how do you see the U.S. Air Force engagement around the world in terms of hard and soft power? Uh, if you'd like to comment on smart power, by all means do so, because I think re really what you just outlined uh, in the way we're approaching this integrated deterrence is kind of sort of a smart power application. Uh, sharp power is not something the United States tend, tends to do. Uh, if people want to look that up, that's really sort of manipulating certain aspects of, of the information sphere, and we, we don't want to do that. That's really more propaganda, misinformation, and disinformation, and the United States uh, tends to avoid that. We want, to, we want to concentrate on the truth of a situation, uh, which is what, what has been, I think, pretty effective in, in deterring uh, the Russian uh, propaganda line as far as why they have invaded Ukraine. Uh, so the U.S. Air Force, hard and soft power, maybe smart power. What are your thoughts on the U.S. Air Force? role in that. Absolutely. So let me start with a phrase from the National Defense Strategy, which is that we are to strengthen allies and attract new partners. To me, that's a great balance between hard power, strengthen, and soft power, attract. Mm -hmm. And I'll give you a couple examples of those here in a moment. But I think the value of soft power on the front side of attracting means that we have more common interests and objectives because we're moving the countries closer together. And then once we do that, then via hard power tools, we can explore those common objectives to make sure that we can equip or train or exercise or collaborate in those areas that overlap between their objectives and our objectives. And so I like the idea of smart power because to me, that is the balance between the two. 
all hard power and all soft power is not going to both strengthen and attract. It may do one or the other, but it will not do both. And smart power is essentially a view for the long term that brings partners together by attracting them and then strengthening them once they are sufficiently attracted to the right way. And a fighter program like F-16 Block 70s is a good example. While those aircraft are hard power, the way that we implement security cooperation via a total package approach is intended for us to be with the partner for the duration of that program, 30 or 40 years. And now that means that we have a close, mutually beneficial relationship that may be grounded in that one platform that allows us now to find that common ground and exercise the attract component of strengthen and attract. Um, Schools are another great example. And that's almost all soft power, where you bring in a lieutenant colonel to our Air War College, and they spend a year amongst allies and partners, but primarily American airmen. And now they go back with a little piece of America to their country. Often, by the way, those individuals are specifically chosen and tend to rise through the ranks to the highest levels. And now we have allies, like I saw in that room at the NATO Air Chief Summit, that fundamentally understand us and we understand them because we've been working with them now for a decade or two since they intersected with us for the first time. And so to me, that smart power has a view for the long term of the importance of this relationship and attracting them to us and to some extent us to them and then strengthening them based on the tools that we have at our disposal. You mentioned sharp power. That undermines countries. It's manipulative. Right. We do not tend to do that, but we fear that our adversaries do, and we need to make sure that we're resi- we are resilient enough and wise enough about some of those tactics to make sure that we are immune to those the best we can be, and our allies and partners are as well. Yeah. Uh, so for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is U.S. Air Force Brigadier General John Teichert, who currently serves as the Assistant Deputy Undersecretary of the Air Force for International Affairs. Uh, so General Teichert, uh, we just talked about the theory of statecraft, tools of national power. Uh, let's move from theory to real-world application. And, and, and very briefly, we only have 15 minutes left on our show today because I know you have a hard stop. Uh, specifically, we'll talk about the crisis in Ukraine. You mentioned your time in Iraq in our first segment and the role you played uh, play now on the Air Force staff, guiding inter- international programs and engagement with allies and friends around the world. Uh, I would tell you that uh, from, from my perspective, uh, you know, 10, 11 years retired now, uh, but watching things that are happening in the world, uh, President Volodymyr Zelensky, his messaging and the messaging of his government has been absolutely masterful. His entire cabinet, his ambassadors, they provide this constant drumbeat that re- reinforces Ukraine's needs and what they ask for from NATO and specifically from the United States. You've been in, involved in international relations for a while now. How effective has the, Lin- the Zelensky government been in the practice of statecraft? So we have to give a lot of credit to Ukraine and their military and their leadership. They have been holding off an aggressive and fairly capable foe now for almost three months. We have to recognize that this is a Russian war of choice and that they are actively violating the sovereignty of Ukraine. They're also violating international norms and the agreements that they are parties to. Right. And in spite of all of that and the brutality that has gone on in much of Ukraine, 
they, the Ukrainians, have done a masterful job holding off this determined and aggressive foe. They haven't done so alone. I know that your listeners realize, even based on a supplemental that passed the House last night, that during these last two and a half to three months, we and our allies and partners have been doing what we can to support Ukraine via equipment and a variety of other things. Uh, Up to this point, since February 24th, we have provided $3.8 billion of military support to them. And a great example of that may be the state partnership from the state of California, where Ukrainian pilots for the last eight years have been flying alongside of American pilots and getting to know one another and training together. And I think the Ukrainian Air Force has done very well as a result. And we have supported Ukraine very actively for those last eight years. And in part, that's why they've succeeded. But they've also succeeded because of leadership. And you mentioned President Zelensky, and you know that he's a comedian and an actor. And so he's good with timing and he's good with messaging. And I think he has provided the right message throughout this crisis at the right time. And the world has been watching, and I think they've been seized by what he has had to say. And clearly, he's more than just talk. Um, The Ukrainian military and whole of government has masterfully woven into their security cooperation apparatus a united Western NATO alliance that has supported them along with others. They have helped isolate Russia, uh, and every day Russia continues to weaken in their power and their prestige. But a lot of it goes to the top in Ukraine. And it is um, really touching as a military and leadership professional to see how it is being applied in an extremely tough situation in Ukraine. And at the top of that is President Zelensky. Yeah. Uh, General, I know we got about 10 minutes left. Uh, Let's finish out our discussion today talking about another potential major international crisis scenario, which would be a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. Uh, obviously, the Indo-Pacific Command is, is a huge uh, command in the, in the DOD. Uh, some, some tremendously important economic relationships uh, between the U.S. and China, uh, all of which could be threatened. Uh, Taiwan, uh, a huge producer of semiconductors uh, for the globe. Uh, we both know that, that a war like that, a Chinese invasion of, of Taiwan, is a no-kidding U.S. Navy and U- U.S. Air Force war. We are not invading mainland China with, with the Army. Uh, we're, we're not likely to, uh, you know, even put Marines ashore, uh, it, it, although that's a possibility. So it'll be up to the Navy and the Air Force to bolster Taiwan's defense or to defeat Chinese invasion forces, maybe even support U.S. forces uh, ashore in Taiwan to back up the Taiwanese military. Uh, We'll see, right? I mean, every crisis is different. Uh, Most of what we're hearing from the intelligence community is that uh, uh, the danger of this this invasion exists out to about 2030. I I don't know if you saw that uh, Director of National Intelligence, Avril Haines, uh, and uh, the director of uh, DIA were just testifying before Congress. They mentioned this as a, an acute possibility uh, that the Chinese could could invade Taiwan. Uh, the Chinese are certainly watching uh, what the Russians are doing in Ukraine right now. 
so as military professionals, we always plan for the worst case scenario uh, because everything else is easier after that once you're prepared for the worst case scenario. How do you see the, the role of uh, Air Force International Affairs in helping to deter China or, if necessary, to aid in defeating Chinese plans to seize Taiwan? Uh, that's, that's a policy issue. You're in a policy position right now. I'm <laughs> putting you on the spot. Uh, what do you have to say about that? So, John, our overarching strategy, first of all, is to maintain a free, open, and stable international system. Yeah. And the Indo-Pacific region is certainly part of that. And frankly, for the last 80 years, almost all nations have benefited from a system that has enabled a free, open, and stable international system, including China. Uh, and, and so that's important to note, first of all. And you're right that the Chinese are watching what is happening happening in Eastern Europe. But so must we as the United States, and so must Taiwan. And as we think about those concepts of integrated deterrence in helping our potential adversaries understand the folly of aggression, we need to understand those things that maybe weren't done as well as they could have to deter the initial Russian invasion of Ukraine and make sure that they are implemented and messaged properly in Taiwan. Because it is the United States' firm desire to not have to fight that war. We will right. if we must. But most importantly, to deter any foe anywhere around the world and not just do so alone, but very much at the heart of integrated deterrence is to do so at, uh, alongside of our allies and our partners. There's a lot of things that I think Taiwan in particular should be considering as they are considering their own resilience and how they would be able to um, fend off any sort of aggression or invasion. And we have a longstanding partnership with Taiwan that has spanned over 40 years, multiple administrations. And so it is up to the United States and our allies and partners to help shape the resilience of Taiwan in order to provide a proper deterrent posture. So that is a fight that we don't have to fight because right. we have properly deterred it. Yeah, and, and I would just say, you know, we talk about foreign military sales. Uh, we, we have been giving a lot of military heart, you know, aid to, to Ukraine. Uh, I just saw that uh, the Biden administration is, is asking, I think it's uh, is it Lockheed Martin that produces the, uh, the Javelin, uh, to up that uh, production from 2,100 uh, missiles a year to 4,000 missiles a year. Uh, that that is still a woefully inadequate number if we're talking about uh, significant combat operations. One of the big lessons learned, I think, from the Ukraine situation is that we're going to go through high-end uh, weapon systems much faster than any of us really anticipate uh, because we haven't really been in a full-scale conventional war in a very long time. Uh, so the foreign military sales aspect of what uh, what the Air Force does, uh, I'm assuming there's a lot of that being discussed right now with Taiwan or other partners across the Western Pacific. Is that uh, is that a good guess on my part? So, John, absolutely. I think this has been a wake up call to a variety of our allies and partners that there are malign actors out there that would look to disrupt that free, open and stable system that we talked about earlier. And the way that you deter or respond is via integration with allies and partners, but also through a combination of hard and soft power that includes capability. And we recognize that several of our allies and partners in the situation of Ukraine are giving some of their own weapon stocks to Ukraine, and they'll be looking to backfill those. 
but based on increased defense budgets because of this aggression, that they'll also be looking to purchase uh, higher end or more equipment. And I know that our allies and partners in the Pacific are considering these same things, realizing, again, that it's far better to deter than have to respond and defeat. That's right. Uh, the old adage of uh, to avoid war, always be prepared for war. Uh, that's the best that's exactly de- right. best deterrence, yeah. So, General, we have just about five minutes left. Uh, I'm, I'm going to give you the last word here. Uh, what else should listeners know about U.S. Air Force international programs and initiatives designed to support our allies and friends around the world? Or, and maybe you could follow that up with uh, just talk about the people who serve in those missions uh, in the Air Force and the Space Force uh, in defense of our country's national security interests. Absolutely, John. And thanks for teeing that up, because I really want to talk about the professionalism and the power of those who put this strategy into practice every single day. Spread out in 120 countries around the world, our exchange officers, our foreign area officers who are airmen or guardians that I say are on the front lines of strategic competition and integrated deterrence. And while strategy coming out of Washington is important, if there aren't practitioners that can operationalize that strategy, then the strategy is just a bunch of words on a piece of paper. And those FAOs, foreign area officers and exchange officers, who are indeed are in both the Air Force and the Space Force, are every day integrating and whole of government country teams led by ambassadors to make sure that our whole of government strategy with respect to that bilateral relationship in that country across the dime is exactly what it needs to be. And I mentioned earlier the incredible professionalism and patriotism of members of the whole of government portions of that country team. But we're proud of our FAOs and we're proud of our exchange officers. They're warriors, but they're diplomats. uh, And they're out there, you say, on the pointy end of the spear, but really on the, the friendly side of the international handshake, making sure that we are empowering and equipping and emboldening our allies and partners so that we attract and strengthen all at the same time to meet our U.S. national security needs. So unfortunately, General Tiger, we've re- reached the end of today's edition of National Security This Week. I know you have a hard stop here in a couple minutes. Uh, Brigadier General John Tiger, Assistant Deputy Undersecretary of the Air Force for International Programs, thank you so much for joining us today. John, it's been a true joy and honor. Thank you very much, and thanks to your listeners. So that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. I look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio. Have a great finish to your week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week. Ninety-five point one, The One. More music, better variety. The One.